Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, and today we have a fun show. As you probably noticed, there are new streaming services available, specifically Discovery Plus and Paramount Plus, which is out today. So we brought in a resident streaming expert, Julia Alexander, to talk about those services and the streaming landscape in general and the streaming wars, which we're not supposed to call streaming wars, but they're streaming wars. And we also talked to Kevin Roos, who you may remember was just on this show. The reason we're having Kevin Roos back on, he's the New York Times columnist, is that he's got a new book called Future Proof. It's about the role of tech in our society and, and how that's going to change and what it ought to become and Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. It's a very good read and Kevin's a very good interview, so I was delighted to have him back. And also, speaking of Kevin Roos, while we're here, Kevin made an excellent podcast last year about uh, YouTube called Rabbit Hole. And I and my colleagues have tried to make an excellent podcast about YouTube. It's out this week. It's part of the Land of the Giants Google series. And you can go hear that now wherever you hear a fine podcast just like this one. This is a seven-part series that Shereen Ghaffari and Alice Kantrowitz are doing. Um, there's one episode on YouTube that I worked on today, so you can go check that out now. Okay, here is Julia Alexander. Julia Alexander, welcome to Recode Media. Welcome back. It's been a while. Thank you. I'm so excited to be back. Oh, well, there's always a new streaming service to talk about. Or actually, maybe not. Maybe we are at the end of the new streaming service launches. One can really hope. Paramount Plus is launching today. Uh, Discovery Plus. I think that's it for sort of at least things we've been promised are coming, right? Of all the big media companies, they're all done now. So I want to talk to you about uh, both Discovery and, and Paramount Plus, but let's go very, very big picture. Um, the streaming wars, I know we're not supposed to call them streaming wars, but they're, they've, they've been going on for a while now. All the major players that are going to be here are here. Quippy has come and gone. You you wrote their tombstone for them uh, the, day, the day it launched. I remember I asked you. Um, do we have any big picture thoughts about everything that we've seen so far and the relative performance of everyone that isn't Netflix? The obvious winner so far in the streaming wars, the term we're not supposed to use, um, is clearly, outside of Netflix, is clearly Disney+. And I think that speaks to two specific things. One, brand recognition and, and kind of fulfilling a need. And in that situation, Disney+, Plus provides endless entertainment for kids and it provides a safe way place for kids to be that's not youtube so parents aren't freaking out about what their kids are watching at a very low cost um and two and i think it speaks to the fact that disney can overall you know spend less on the idea of um like marketing for a cost acquisition and they can just spend less on having to tell people what disney plus is because within 15 months people figured out what disney plus is and i think the big thing we'll see over the next 
few years is Warner Media and NBC Universal and Viacom CBS, just to name a few, are going to have to figure out how to make Peacock and HBO Max and Paramount Plus really resonate with consumers without reiterating over and over again what it is they're paying for. Yeah. And I mean, at Disney, we all sort of got what it was right away. And then they had The Mandalorian, which was a huge hit and people talked about. It. And then they had Hamilton, which I think didn't get enough coverage, but it definitely spiked uh, their stuff this summer. It's also when they stopped giving away uh, free trials and and now they have WandaVision. Um, this is really the most crucial question I need to ask you. WandaVision or Mandalorian? Where, where do you come down? Oh, wow, man. That's like choosing children. Um, no, there is definitely a correct answer. There is definitely a better kid in this group. I mean, the answer is WandaVision. That is correct. Yeah. That is correct. <laughs> that is, and I'm, by the way, I'm not a Marvel fanboy. I've seen most of it now just because I, I have to. It's my favorite Marvel thing by far. I think it'd be hard to watch if you didn't consume any Marvel, but it's great. And it's so much better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So and good for you, Julia Alexander. You're 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 invited back again. <laughs> Yay. Um, you, you don't want do you want you want to hedge that at all in case you have angry Mandalorian Star Wars people coming at you? No, I was just gonna good. say it's even more impressive considering that it was supposed to be the second or third Marvel show to come out because yep. it was so weird that they were worried. But I mean, everyone loves it, and finally we have appointment TV at three in the morning again. <laughs> do have they explained why they're putting out new 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 uh, episodes at, at at three in the morning Eastern time? Uh, they told CNN that it was the best time on a global scale because uh -huh. streaming is now global. But it's also funny that we're talking about it with Disney Plus when Netflix has done this for years, when they always drop it at midnight at uh, Pacific time, 3 a.m. But they Saturday. dropped a whole new season. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they are still they are still clinging to that. Okay, so let's talk about the, the two latest slash last entries in the streaming wars. Discovery Plus came out. Um, I was not very enthusiastic about it. Not from a programming sense. I just didn't think it filled a need. Um, it looks like it's done better than people might have thought. The, the numbers are fuzzy. We don't exactly know how they perform, but tell us what you think about Discovery Plus early on. I wrote about it this week over at The Verge that it is my favorite go-to streaming service. It is on in my apartment every single day from 8 a.m. till 6, 7 p.m. And it's because they've done two things really well. They have created background noise in a way that I don't have to think about it once it's on. It's the perfect form of ambient TV, um, or as I like to refer to it, it's waiting room television. Uh, you kind of put it on and you forget it's there. You check in once in a while. But the fact that I can go and choose from a house hunters channel or um, diners, dives and drive-in channel and just leave it and then not think about it has created an ambience that I really love during the pandemic. Um, and I keep referring to it as <laughs> it's done for adults, what Disney Plus did for kids, which is if you don't want to watch Frozen 2 over and over again, I do want to watch House Hunters over and over again and, and have it on in the background. Um, and so I think, I know that they really were, they had this whole theory about like, people are going to come back to us because it's their favorite shows and they'll watch us over and over again. And I think part of it is like, Yes, in the sense that I like having House Hunters on the background and therefore it fulfills that need. But also, I think they really don't get enough credit for figuring out passive television um, out on a constant scale without ads playing. For me, I have the ad-free plan and it is the greatest discovery I've had uh, streaming-wise in the last six months. I should know this about you. Do you have cable TV? Do you have, did you grow up with cable TV? Is this? Oh, yeah. You, you, know, what, you know what that product is? Yeah, grew up on okay. cable. Uh, grew up on all the additional cable packages for sports because I was in Canada. So to get a bunch of stuff, it was just additional packages. Um, grew up watching Deja Vu type 
networks. Uh, so I, I remember all this and grew up watching Discovery, like grew up watching the different networks that they own. Um, it's funny because what you're describing, sort of the comfort food slash passive watching slash don't really want to watch a particular thing. So you throw that on like that is the Discovery and now Discovery Scripts. That is their programming. Now, there are some people there who love House Hunters or a Food Network show. But most of the idea is it's sort of the middle of the cable dial. It's programming that come, you can tune in, you can tune out, you can walk in halfway through and you know what's going in in an episode of Chopped. It doesn't matter that you missed the first part. And that works really well on cable TV when you're sort of used to having the television on and that passive experience. And it's exactly why I thought it wouldn't work in an on-demand world, because who just lets their monitor play for eight hours a time? So do you, th now, and there are apparently millions of other people who want this stuff. Do you think, though, that, that your use case is more common than I'd think? Or do you think you're some weirdo nerd who wants to have programming on but doesn't want to pick it and wants it to be gently inoffensive? I think there there's two answers set on the grand scale. I think I'm a bit of a weirdo, but anecdotally, like my partner uh, who's weirder leaves investigation discovery stuff on Discovery Plus playing all day. Like he loves the crime stuff and he'll just have it on in the background while he works. And, you know, my brother does the same thing with Discovery where he just has it on because like, he likes the sound of it um, without having to pay attention to it. And I think working from home and if uh, like none of us have kids, um, it's just that nice background noise that you get from an office otherwise um, without really having to pay attention to it. <laughs> what but if we just like recorded a sound of a microwave going off periodically <laughs> and some smelly fish that someone made and a random fire dollars. alarm? <laughs> oh, it's so sad. We need but you I back in the, the office. I, I think the second answer, which people really overlook, um, is that a lot of these shows are so replicable. And I think that's what Netflix has done so well. If you look at Netflix's unscripted offering, which is, still relatively new for them considering in 2015 Ted Sarandos was like we're not even going to do unscripted uh like considering how far they've come they've basically just taken what works on other networks and been like we can make that yeah on any given day their top 10 list half of it's a you know a reality cooking show or a reality uh welding show they have I've seen um there's a show where they have to compete to make uh, I think knives yeah. uh I watched a barbecue show and again like you know they're, they're, people are picking them they're deciding to watch them and so that's also why I thought Discovery Plus won't work well in the long term, is that everything they do, all of that programming can be replicated by Netflix, can be replicated by Hulu, um, plug for our, our parent company, Vox Media, which is making food shows for Hulu. Yeah. If we can do it, everyone can do it. So we'll see how that works. Um, let's talk about Paramount Plus. We had Bob Backish on, the CEO of ViacomCBS last fall, talking about this. Um, they are the very last to get into streaming, even though they started off with CBS. They, they allowed you to pay for that, as well as Showtime fairly early on. The slogan is a mountain of entertainment, which sounds stupid, but the more I hear it and they insist on repeating it over and over, I kind of like it now. Because I kind of think what they want to say is it's a shit ton of stuff. Yeah, which would be a good, a good and accurate slogan. I don't know if it's actually going to persuade anyone. What do you What do you think of it? It is a shit ton of stuff that is also though available everywhere else. I mean, this was the whole thing I never understood with Paramount, with Viacom, CBS, who uh, obviously owns Paramount Plus. And when they were promoting during this four hour, or two and a half hour event they had the other day, they promoted a new iCarly show they're making, which is great for people in their twenties who want to revisit shows they grew up with. 
And I was like, if you wanted to watch the show right now and someone asked you to where, where to watch it, you would point to Netflix where it's a top 10 title currently. And the same thing with Avatar and Legend of Korra, which are other huge shows that are also on Netflix and are top 10 performers. I mean, you can kind of point to any streaming service. And I think a great example is Yellowstone, which is a huge Viacom CBS show that is on Peacock. And it's like, if you want to watch this, you got to go to Peacock. And so they signed it. I think it was a nine figure deal with the creator. And they're like, we're going to do more of this universe on our side. And the thing I think they're going to run into over and over again is we have this huge library of content. They really do. I think they have one of the best libraries, but I don't understand why I would come to you. And there's absolutely no brand recognition. And they kept trying to hammer home that there is a brand, like a unifying brand recognition. But if you look at Mission Impossible 7, A Quiet Place Part 2 and SpongeBob, no one is going to be like, Viacom CBS. Like, don't you, <laughs> don't you think that they're in the same boat as everyone that isn't Netflix and Disney, though, at this point, which is you and me keep track of which networks have which shows on. In the old days, people might have done that. They certainly don't anymore. That's all gone. So in HBO Max, maybe you know what HBO is, but at that point, you already have HBO. Everything else is just a bunch of stuff which may be good, may be bad, and convincing me to pay for it and spend time with it seems difficult for everyone else. Right. I mean, if originals are an acquisition game and retention is a library game, the big issue that Viacom, CBS, and Paramount Plus is going to have is I don't know what your originals are that are going to get people in the door. To Jason, Kyler, and Warner Media's credit, they upended the theatrical industry by moving a bunch of their movies over to HBO Max. But movies like Wonder Woman 1984 and Godzilla vs. Kong and Dune later in the year at Matrix 4, I think, will get people into HBO Max. Mm -hmm. And once you're there, you know, I've said multiple times on, on The Verge that HBO Max is one of my favorite streaming services because of the library and because you're getting HBO content all the time. Like, it's just a good offering for, and now they want to lean yep. heavily into kids. And I think they've got a really good product. It's just getting people in the door, which Disney and Netflix don't have. You know, Netflix had the advantage of being first and scaled. And so now they're in a really good place. Disney has the advantage of owning everything people seem to be interested in. Uh, so Disney's fine. And I think the other three, it's going to be a combination of, is your price point going to be something that people are okay with having? And that's why you have a lot of the ad supported plans. Is this something that people are going to want to keep in their carousel on their Google Chromecast TV? Maybe. And I think with Viacom CBS and uh, NBC Universal specifically with Paramount Plus and Peacock, it's how fast are you going to pivot your sports and news offerings to that. Like, cause they clearly, I think the biggest move that we got out of the Viacom CBS event was that they've like everyone else have basically moved away from their linear like like system that they have. They have a linear TV business and they are still part of it, but they're quickly moving away from it as much as they can. Um, and I think the bigger question for them is like, how quickly do you bring sports news over to, you know? Well, sport, right. I mean, I mean, they, they can't, if you that you can't bring if you, their NFL deal right. right, it has to be on broadcast TV for right. both. They want that to be the case, and the NFL certainly does. Um, maybe they've got other programming they can move in, but then it's not the NFL. So who really cares if you've moved that over? And news, I don't know. I mean, people say that news is important, but I, it's you know there, there's a reason that the there's a handful of all news channels, and they're just talk radio because there's nothing to do, and you don't really need them. Um, and if, unless you're a hardcore news junkie, and I don't think there are many of those. They, they all, all of all of the services are also rebooting old slash '80s slash '90s television shows, um, which is, I guess, why not, right? But I'm also curious. Um, did you watch Frasier growing up? 
Yeah, I grew up. Okay. I watched Cheers growing up. I mean, like I remember. <laughs> okay, then, so those shows mean something Frasier. to you. Does the idea <laughs> of a Frasier reboot with the most of the original cast is that appealing to you? It is appealing if it was in a Netflix subscription. If I'm like, oh, I'm getting it. Cool. The uh-huh. idea that I'm going to go out and pay ten dollars, no. But I think what a really interesting statistic that came from uh, Antenna, which is an analytics firm, they pointed out that. CBS All Access and Showtime had their two kind of biggest growth periods when CBS All Access brought UEFA over when they started streaming on, mm-hmm. on there and when they offered, there was a bundle at that point with Apple, you could get it for cheaper. And then this goes into with Bob Chapek, the CEO of Disney last night said when they're speaking with the little leagues, when they're talking about ESPN, a huge part of their conversations, according to Chapek, is that ESPN Plus is kind of center in these conversations. Like it has to be that that's where we want to focus our product. Whether or not that's true, who knows? But I yeah, think I mean, the counterpoint to that is the folks at Sports Business Journal are saying, look, the 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 new deals for the NFL, the, the TV deals for the NFL are basically all done. Um, they come up every couple of years, and every couple of years, people like myself wonder if there's ever going to be a big digital player. Amazon is getting a, a, a smallish slate of stuff on Thursday night, mm-hmm. um, but you know, the Disney is is putting NFL games again on on ABC and, and ESPN for Monday night. That's it's not going to ESPN Plus. Yeah. Um, that's the main thing. They all can say that they're moving their business in varying degrees to digital, and they all are to different degrees. But they are also all trying to keep the existing business propped up as long as they can. No one has cut the cord, um, no pun intended. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that's so that brings it to the original issue that you brought up, right? At, at that point, if you don't have the exclusivity on the major sports, you don't have a bunch of hungry news people who aren't just on Twitter already, uh, and you're not a Disney brand, then you need top tier things to bring uh, subscribers in in the first place to even try to convince them to stay. And I just don't see anything that Viacom CBS has in its offering that will convince people to do that at this point. What about a Mission Impossible TV show starring Tom Cruise? Would Tom Cruise do TV? I I, I think he's kind of the last actor that will hold out and not go to TV. Uh, or, I, or you get the Tom Cruise TikTok deepfake guy to do it. It's like, it's <laughs> it's so weird that I, I guess that they have models that they have their business reasons for this. But HBO's whole thing was we're going to get HBO and then more, which is why it should have been HBO Plus and not HBO Max. Uh, and it's odd to me that they wouldn't just throw Showtime into Paramount yep. Plus because it's like, that's something that would convince me to maybe sign up. Yeah, but they're not asking us for our advice or input, so we just have to give it to them for free on the podcast periodically. Julia, great to hear from you. Great to see you. Um, I look forward to making office noises around you at some point this calendar year. (laughs) Me too. Bye, Julia. Thanks again to Julia. And now we're going to talk with Kevin Roos. Once again, twice in three months, twice in two months, I'm talking to Kevin Roos for the New York Times. Hi, Kevin. Hey, my cup runneth over. What a treat. Um, you did very well in the last episode, so we thought you'd have you back. But the actual reason we're having you back is because, and before you were talking about the Capitol riots and social media and, and the current dystopia, and you've got a book out called Future Proof, uh, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation, which tells us how to survive the future dystopia that we're headed for when the robots take over the world. Um and it's actually very clever because there's a sort of a, an essay component where you're sort of setting up what's going to happen to us, how machines are about to take over our lives. And then you've got a self-help component 
which is the nine rules. Um, and the first, when you first told me about the book, when I was first reading, it, I thought, oh, this is a businessy book. And this is a very clever idea that Kevin's done because he's going to go on the lecture circuit. And there's plenty of people who are going to want him to explain how to sort of future-proof their businesses. But it really is a self-help book about being a better human, if I do say so myself. Yeah, it's um, the the book is sort of divided into two parts. The first part is sort of the diagnosis, and the second part is is the prescription. And um, I, you know, I I feel like it's going to be helpful to people. I wouldn't categorize. I'm not a self help guru. I don't have any Tony Robbins style uh, motivational I, I, seminars. I, I thought you might take offense at that, but it's pretty self helpy. <laughs> but I don't think it's necessarily pejorative. Well, someone once told me that, you know, people buy books because they think it'll help them solve problems in their lives. And this is honestly, this is something I get asked a lot, as I'm sure a lot of tech reporters do. People are really worried about the, you know, the news that they hear about AI and automation, and especially now coming out of the pandemic when so many jobs have been lost. I think people are really worried about what's going to happen to their job. Um, so I I started writing this a couple of years ago, sort of before... Um, you know, before COVID, before the kind of Andrew Yang, you know, candidacy got people talking mm -hmm. about automation. But I was, you know, this was 2017, 18. And, and as I'm sure you remember, like, before every conversation in Silicon Valley was about Bitcoin, like every conversation was about AI. Yeah, um, I and, and yeah, and just just for context here, this is a little off tangent for our, our standard future of media conversation, but it's also solidly in that vein because half the stuff you're talking about shows up on on Facebook and Netflix and Spotify recommendations. And if you are making or consuming content, this book is relevant to you there. Plus, you have to live in that world. But I was thinking like, oh, this is a 2016 book. Because pre-Trump, there was a lot of discussion, and no, you know, one of the last things Obama was warning us about was what's happening to the displaced worker, uh, and so, and that was a, a very current conversation. And I do remember sort of Mark Andreessen on stage at the Code Conference explaining why we didn't need to worry about automation because you know uh, people who used to drive carriages eventually drove trucks, et cetera. Um, but that conversation went away for a few years. As your book points out, the sort of the worry and anxiety about machines, robots displacing us, it goes back hundreds of years, right? At least since the Industrial Revolution. It seems it's, it's kind of a cyclical conversation. Yeah, it goes back thousands of years, actually. There's a book from the year 350 BC when Aristotle, uh, you know, is musing about how automated harp players are going to put all the harp players out of work. I suppose so someone was been... worried about the wheel at some point. This wheel <laughs> is going to do terrible things. Right, right. And so for a long time, like these fears were, were out there. They were fairly unfounded. People were predicting, you know, people have been predicting, you know, the automation of work, uh, you know, for since the Industrial Revolution. And I think, you know, one question I had was like, are these fears all overblown um, or is there something to them? Is, is, is it different what's happening now different? Exactly. And, and you conclude that it is indeed different, right? That the Mark Andreessen argument that, yeah, the people who used to, uh, what's the word, furriers, people who make a... Uh, Horseshoes for horses—is that the right word? Or am I is that conflating things? Wow, I think so. But um, anyway, someone someone used to, someone used to make a living making horseshoes, right? And now they don't. But now there's other work. And and and, and by the way, even if they're displaced, we're going to have so much productivity gains that the the, the net result is it's going to be better. You look at this and you conclude. Well, is that defense? I, is that do you, do you think that defense is is going to work out this time? 
No, I, I, I don't. And I think that we're already seeing, I mean, one thing I think we, we get wrong about the conversation about AI and automation is we have it in the future tense. Like what, what is going to happen to, to jobs when AI and automation arrive? And, and this has been happening now for, for a while. And there's, there's a great um, uh, series of papers by these economists, uh, Darren Asamoglu and Pascal Strepo, who basically studied this issue. And they found that for most of the 20th century, like the optimists were basically right. Like the Mark Andreessen argument was right. That, you know, automation was displacing some job, but it was creating new jobs faster. Um, But then they found that since 1990 or so, um, not only did jobs get displaced at a faster rate than they were created, but the new jobs that were created like weren't accessible to the people with the old skills. And so like, you know, part of this is, is this book is not an economic argument. I mean, it really is a story that I, I wanted to put myself in because I have worried about this too, as I'm, as I'm sure you have. I mean, my, my first job as a journalist was writing, you know, about finance and, and corporate earnings reports and doing sort of the, you know, the quick turn, um, you know, Morgan Stanley made this much in profit last quarter story. And those jobs are automated. Like that is now not a job that a lot of entry level reporters have. Um, The AP and other news organizations now use, you know, robot software to write those earnings reports. And so this is not like a theoretical worry for me. This is something that I think about every day. I, I work for a newspaper, which I think in Silicon Valley, people think is like being a furrier. <laughs> and, um, and so I wanted to know, like, not only what's going on out there, but like, what can we, what can I do about it? Well, and, I, and to get very meta here, you wrote a book that's going to allow you to have a second set of income uh, from the New York Times, because you can go lecture about this. It's very smart. Um, and yes, I've written about the robots writing uh corporate earnings reports myself and have concluded that, well, it's better that they have that because it will allow the remaining people in journalism to have better jobs. If your job can be done by a robot, then that's something you should be worried about anyway. And frankly, maybe in an ideal world, you wouldn't be doing it. It's easy. It's relatively easy for you and me to say that, uh, less so for other people. Do you think there's something sort of politically that, that makes this conversation come up or, or go away? periodically? Or is it just sort of like a metronome? It just keeps coming back. Well, I think during the Trump administration, there were a lot of things that felt like they were emergencies, especially Mm -hmm. for liberals. Um, And so the automation conversation largely, as you said, like went away. Um, But a lot happened in those four years, like on the technology side. The technology got so much better in the last four years. There have been advances in machine learning and deep learning. Um, all of the benchmarks are just being blown through for all these neural network applications. Um, and we're starting to see automation happen in the corporate world at a rate that we that we haven't seen before. One thing you point out in the book is that I thought was particularly interesting and useful was don't just think about it as the Jetsons robot replacing you or in our case, um, software replacing. So you used to write a story and now software can do that. That a lot of this stuff is happening and people are losing jobs or companies are being shrunk or, or uprooted via automation, but it's not always sort of clear that that's what's happening to everyone in the middle. Can you tease out how that happens? Yeah, so I think the traditional way we think about 
automation displacing jobs is is the Jetsons model, as you said. It's like there's there's this episode of the Jetsons where George Jetson like gets up in the morning and goes to work at the at the Sprockets factory and um and his boss, you know, says, sorry, we have this robot here who's gonna do your job from now on. Um, and he offers him a job as the robot's assistant as sort of a consolation prize. And that's sort of the image that we have. You show up at the factory one day and there's like a machine doing the thing that you used to do. But more often what happens is this kind of ground level disruption. And a good model for that is actually what's happened in media. So we don't talk about this as an automation story, but what's happened to the newspaper business and the magazine business in part is that, you know, there used to be people um, who were called ad salespeople. Um, who, you know, Procter and Gamble would call up the, the, you know, the ad department of the New York Times or Vox Media or some other, you know, media company, and they would say, we'd like to buy an ad. And the person on the other end of the phone would say, okay, here, here are the options. Here, here's how much it's going to cost you. And they would sell the ad. That job has largely been automated. It's now being done by, you know, automated uh, ad auction systems at Google and Facebook. Um, and that change has eliminated a lot of jobs in the traditional legacy media. Hasn't happened in TV yet, by the way. The TV guys are seeing this coming and they're trying to keep as much of that for themselves as possible, even though they'll they'll say otherwise. But yeah. Totally, totally. And so we don't think of those jobs in the ad departments of newspapers and magazines as being automated, but because that automation didn't happen at the media companies, right? It happened at the tech companies, um, but it's still, the net effect is still the same. What do you think about the way the sort of uh, both Silicon Valley and popular culture thinks about AI and robots in this displacement today? Do you think that has changed? Do you think people have are more concerned now than they were X number of years ago, or is this the same sort of steady state? I've, I'm always struck, have been struck in the past at how proud Amazon is about displaying their robot armies. And I've always thought, even though this makes a bunch of tech sense, I would think they'd be a little more reticent. Like if you go into certain Amazon buildings, there's a there's a life-size robot there. This is the robot that does our work at the warehouses. And Amazon is happy to let you into the warehouses and show you the robots doing all the work. The one thing they won't let you photograph actually is the last stage of the the uh, the distribution part, which involves humans sweating their asses off, moving boxes into into slightly bigger boxes. But they're proud to show you the robots doing all the work, um, which always strikes me as is odd. Yeah, I mean, it it seems like maybe they haven't read their you know American history books. Um, I mean, if you go back to the industrial revolution, you find people, you know, breaking machines and workers who realize that this poses a threat to their livelihood. That is what a Luddite is, right? Exactly. They broke the weaving machines. And then, you know, even more recently in the 1970s, there was this wave of automation that happened in, in manufacturing in car factories. And there was this, um, there was this famous strike at a GM plant in Lordstown, Ohio, where, the workers, you know, they, they showed up and there were robots in the factory and they said, this sucks. Like, we don't want to work alongside these robots. We want to do this ourselves. That's what we know how to do. And and they went on strike and it was huge. You know, it was a huge news story all over the country. Um, and eventually, you know, GM had to make some concessions to them. So, yeah, I think it's probably temporary that Amazon is, is you know, showing off its robots proudly. But it also reflects how much has changed, not just in the robotics and automation world, but in the workforce. I mean, those GM workers were unionized. They could band together and fight back. 
and there were still they still had enough sort of autonomy that they could do that. I mean, Amazon workers are essentially human robots. I mean, they are told what to do by by algorithms. Their productivity is tracked down to the millisecond. If they miss their target rate, they can be sort of fired by an algorithm. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's really a, a situation in which like they are essentially the the only human links in the system, um, and effectively they're managed by. AI and and algorithms already. Elon Musk is a pretty interesting character in this narrative, right? Because he is someone who's making cars that allow humans to hand over the driving to robots. He also warns us about the future in which robots take over. Um, For a while, there were a rash of someone was driving a Tesla. So the autopilot on a Tesla crashed and killed the driver or someone else. And they would say things like, well, that only happens one out of this many thousands of times and human drivers cause many more errors. And, and, and he's, he seems conflicted about the use of, of robots now and in the future. Yeah, he's a really fascinating case. And, and one of the stories that I find most fascinating about him is, do you remember a couple years ago when Tesla was like really struggling to meet its, all its production targets and it was, you know, the stock was getting killed and Elon was you know, sleeping on the factory floor and everything was going wrong. And it turned out that one of the reasons they were struggling to hit their production targets is that they had over-automated. They had basically, you know, set up all these robots that were making a lot of mistakes. The parts that were coming off the line weren't very good. There wasn't a lot of human oversight and it ended up backfiring. And so he has this tweet from a couple of years ago where he says, you know, excessive automation at Tesla was a mistake. Um, Humans are underrated. So I think this is starting, you're starting to see sort of companies making the mistake of, of automating too much too quickly and having to then sort of backtrack and, and hire back some humans to sort of improve on the, the work that the machines are doing. But the premise of the book is this future is, it's now, it's hurtling toward us, um, even, if we're, even if you want to slow it down a little bit, it's coming, so we'd best prepare for it. So we're going to take a quick break, and then Kevin is going to tell us how to gird ourselves for the coming robot apocalypse. Kevin. I was teasing this uh, this for you like a like a proper radio host, but you do tell us how to how to prepare ourselves. I would sum it all up as be a better human, um, but that'd be a very short book. It's not a long book, by the way. It's a very readable book. So you've got nine rules here, and so we won't discuss each rule. But again, it's very very self helpy, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. Be surprising, social, and scarce. Resist machine drift. I hope that these are the correct titles. Yes. Okay, we were discussing whether these updated. Demote your devices, leave handprints, don't be an endpoint, treat AI like a chimp army, which is great. Build big nets and small webs, learn machine age humanities, and the rule number nine is arm the rebels. So, because I want people to buy the books, we won't discuss each one, each rule. Which of these nine rules you've laid out here can someone sort of most easily accomplish today? They could hit pause on this podcast and go out and accomplish right now. Um, well, one of my favorite pieces of the book to write was this part about, it's it's actually rule number four, we all go out of order, it's uh, leave handprints. So this is an idea that I, I got from um, Jan LeCun, who runs the AI research at Facebook. I mean, he gave a talk a, a couple years ago where he basically said that in the future, the things that are done by machines will become less valuable. And the things that are done by humans, and that are obviously done by humans, will become more valuable. 
And he used the example of a TV, like a flat screen TV and a ceramic bowl. So like a flat screen TV is a major piece of technology. It has tons of different parts. It's got, you know, lasers and transistors and rare earth metals. And it's basically entirely made and assembled and shipped by machines. And so as a result, like you can get a pretty big flat screen TV for like a couple hundred bucks. A great one, yeah. But if you want like a ceramic bowl made by like a a talented artisan, this is technology that's been around for thousands of years, like that's actually probably going to cost you more than the TV because it's made by a human. And there's a concept in, in social psychology called the effort heuristic, which basically says that the more effort we think someone put into something, the higher we value it. So there have been studies where, you know, they give one group of people, you know, a bag of candy uh, that's been sort of randomly picked for them. And they give another group of people the same bag of candy, but there's a little label on it that says, you know, someone picked this out specifically for you. And people who have that little label on the bag of candy, like, think it tastes better than the candy that they think was randomly assembled for them. Right. If you live in certain parts of this country... Right, like the part of the country you live in, the part of the country I live in, and pockets throughout, and they generally probably voted for for Clinton and and uh, and not Trump, uh, and Biden and not Trump. Um, like you sort of get the artisanal bespoke value of this stuff. How does it apply to things where you know you're not going to buy it at a farmer's market or something approaching a farmer's market? Sure. Well, I think. I think actually you're a great example of this. I mean, I think you know, ah. both of us used to write news stories for newspapers and websites that, you know, were sort of detached and in third person and, you know, maybe someone else could have written them and, and the byline wasn't that important. And I think what leaving handprints means to me as a journalist is putting myself into the work, um, you know, writing in first person. Mm-hmm. Um, doing podcasts. Um, you know, I hosted a podcast, as you know, like I think, you know, writing newsletters is a piece of this, like parts of the job in which you can display your humanity and and allow people to connect to you in a more authentic way and sort of trying to not just do the kind of glossy, detached, third person view from nowhere kind of journalism. That's an example from journalism, but you can do this in any which, kind of job. By the way, depending on which publisher you're talking to on which day, they might say, that's great, we want to support that, or, the, or, the, or in a real conversation in the real world, say, this needs to sound like a Vox.com story or a New York Times story. You can't, you can't fly your free flag as much as you'd like to here. You're, you're part of the bigger org. And part of that is an editorial slash product decision. And part of it is an economic thing, right? Like, we don't want to create people who are irreplaceable. They might not say it that way, but that's it's. Or if we have a star system, that's a problem. Um, now we're right. now we're and, now we're in full fledged aggression mode. Yeah, no, the, these are um, these are real tensions because you know I think companies understand that you know individuals can accrue power by sort of making themselves you know more individual and and more distinct from the sort of parent brand. I mean, this is what you're seeing right now in a lot in the media business. Um, you know, you have big media companies who are sort of bristling at, you know, the sort of personal branding of some of their, their employees. Um, but this is a really good thing if you're an employee. I mean, you don't want to be a cog in a machine, especially when there are actual machines that are coming in um, that can, you know, that can substitute for you. Um, the, the more individual you are, the more you stick out as a human, the better equipped you're going to be to survive that. You've got a couple uh, prescriptions here about basically... Use tech less. 
if I was to, to dumb it down, right? Um, use your phone less, uh, be conscious of algorithms and the choice or lack of choice they present to you. Those sound like good things for me to do. Um, how do they help me survive in the, the coming AI apocalypse? Well, I want to correct you on one thing, which is that I don't actually think people need to use tech less. I mean, some people may. Like, I, <laughs> I definitely... You've got a whole chapter here about using your phone less. No, it's it, it's very specifically. It's the chapter is called "Demote Your Devices." So, uh, what I say in the book, and and you know, I am um, I am I am struggling with this myself and working on it myself. Is that it's not actually about the time you spend on your phone. It's about how you're spending that time and who's doing the driving. So, so much of how we use technology today is kind of a passive float down this algorithmic river where, you know, we're being fed these recommendations, um, you know, playlists are being automatically created for us, you know, Gmail fills in the, 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 the emails that we don't feel like writing ourselves. Um, we are kind of the, the, the passive people in the, in the equation. Um, and that's really dangerous. I think that's sort of transferring authority to machines and to companies that make machines and and it's distracting you know sort of getting you away from your most human self and so i've struggled a lot with this i did a big um 30-day phone detox uh last year and and that was really helpful for me but i i think the the larger point is not about how much time you're spending with technology it's about how much authority you're giving to the technology. I think that we need to be in control of our own choices and we need to ask ourselves, like, do I actually want to buy that brand of toilet paper or does Amazon just want me to buy that brand of toilet paper? Like, do I actually want to go on this vacation or do I just want the Instagram likes that I'm going to get from posting the photos? Um, this is a, a, a thing that I think is really um, happening to a lot of people. And I think it's making it hard for them to express themselves as individuals. So just to be a little reductive about it, I get that you're preaching mindfulness, right? Not, not a, although it was hilarious because in your, your story, it said, I, I was using my phone too much. I looked at the screen time and told me I was using it six hours a day. And I, I checked and I'm double that. Uh, you're at 12 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. I mean, I, mean, well, and I, I could easily, are... I could easily strip it down to half and still be unhappy about the way I interact <laughs> with my phone. Yeah, that was pre-pandemic screen yeah. time. But when, it, you can take comfort in the fact that neither of us is as bad as Kara Swisher, um, who once sent me her screen time uh, screenshot from her phone, and it was 21 hours a day. <laughs> it's it's her brand. She wrote Which, a piece about about like giving birth while the BlackBerry was still in her hand. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, I'm not even awake for 21 hours a day. So that's that's impressive. But so again, these all seem like things that we could do. And again, sort of depends on sort of, in some ways, our privilege, right? Like it's easier to do this stuff if you have other resources. Um, it's easier to not depend on your phone for entertainment if you have those options. Um, it's very telling, right, that sort of the, the anti-phone movement came from Silicon Valley, that you had all these tech folks saying, I'm not letting my kid have all this screen time. But what does that mindfulness, whatever term we want to use, how, how is that going to help us in a world where, like it or not, AI and robotics and software have an increasing role in our life? Well, I think it, it goes back to this question of what AI is actually good at. So the the first rule in the book is, is called be surprising, social, and scarce. And these are three concepts that I got from talking with AI researchers who I basically went to and said, okay, 
obviously AI is very good at some things and it's not good at others compared to humans. So what are those things that AI is very bad at? Um, because I think that's where we're going to find our most safety and our, our most prosperity and our, our most happiness is not by sort of trying to compete with the, the algorithms and the AI, but sort of doing the things that they're not very good at. So they told me there are basically three things. Um, surprising work, which is sort of work that involves kind of unusual situations, um, you know, that isn't the same every day. You know, it, it's why like AI is good at playing chess, but it's like a very, it would be a very bad like kindergarten teacher. Right. Because that's it's full of like corner cases and, and, you know, things that require a quick reaction. Social work, so, you know, therapists and social workers, but also, you know, some other jobs that are, that can be made more social. And then scarce jobs, jobs that involve sort of rare combinations of skills, people who are the best in their fields. And I think that the sort of spending less time, you know, being directed by your technology is important for all of those because that's how we develop those skills. It's, you know, we can't, it's very hard to excel at social uh, work if you're always on your phone. There was this amazing study um, that came out of UCLA a few years ago where they took a, a bunch of kids and they they gave them a uh, test that measured their sort of emotional intelligence, how well they recognized other people's um, emotions uh, when presented with them. And then they sent them off into the woods for five days with no screens. Um, and they, you know, and they measured them again when they came back and their scores had improved dramatically, like just five days with no access to their phones had actually made them more emotionally intelligent. And I think in a world where emotional intelligence is something that humans have an advantage in, um, we need to have the right preconditions for developing those skills. Yeah, it's one of the most dismaying parts of the pandemic, right, is that we've been forced to use our screens. Our kids have been forced to use the screens, um, literally, you know, being told to take their lessons from YouTube. Um, so hopefully we can unwind some of that. By the way, I just, uh, I felt bad about using Furrier because I wasn't sure what was right. And I was wrong. It's someone who... What's a Furrier? It's someone who, who dealt or fixed Delts sold or fixed fur garments. So it is a it was a thing. <laughs> Still not really relevant today for the most part. But I don't know. Who what, are the people who make horseshoes then? I don't maybe they're blacksmiths. I'm, I'm I, I, we blacksmiths. have very smart readers. They'll they'll figure it out. Um and and last on the book, what is the thing that is most difficult, do you think, among your prescriptions um uh, for, for the average person to accomplish? Well, the most difficult things are the big societal things. I mean, they're the things that individuals really can't do on their own. Um, and, you know, these would be the sort of policy changes that we need to implement um, at a federal level to make this transition more um, more doable for people. Um, obviously, the, the big one that Andrew Yang talks about a lot is, is you know, universal basic income. Um, but there are other things that, you know, other countries are doing. Um, in Sweden, they have these job councils where if you get, um, you know, if you get laid off because your job is automated, this, there's this sort of um, collective uh, council that can sort of help you get back on your feet, pay you unemployment, um, you know, sustain you till your next job arrives. In Japan, there's a, a similar system. So those are the things that are hardest for individuals to do. But I think there's a lot that we can do on the individual level. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I, I was so frustrated when I would go to all these tech conferences um, and I would hear people talk about AI and, and they would, you know, do these big presentations and either they would say AI is 
great or, and amazing and it's going to make all our lives better or AI is going to you know, steal all the jobs and we're all going to be depressed and unemployed. But then there was never like a, and here's what you can do about it part. It was always mm-hmm. kind of like this fatalistic discussion that assumed that we're just kind of like, that, that like all this stuff is just like happening to us. Like it's a, you know, hurricane or something. And all we can do is kind of like go into our, our, you know, our shelters and, and, you know, get our rations in order. Or maybe but not build on the waterfront, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. But that's, so that's, that's what I'm trying to, you know, sort of write about and sort through is like, what can, you know, what can I, what can you, what can people out there, um, you know, who are not legislators, who are not presidents, what can they do to make this a little easier on themselves? We are all for action here. We being me on the, on the Recode Media Podcast. Um, thank you. I, I really do think this is a, a fun book. It's not a grim slog. Um, it's very readable. It's a good airplane read. Um, I, I think it's going to do well. Um, while we are here, I do want to revisit the conversation we had in mid-January, recording this late in February. Not much time has elapsed. Feels very different, though. Uh, I'm curious, sort of, so when we were talking, obviously, about the Capitol riots and social media's role in those and, and, and the reaction those platforms took, mostly that banning Donald Trump. Um, I'm curious, sort of with with a benefit of a month plus of, of hindsight, sort of how you think social media is doing, sort of dealing with the aftermath of the riots and everything that led to them, um, and whether we're, this is a permanent change. That, I mean, it obviously feels very different not to have Donald Trump tweeting at us and not to pay attention to that. I'm wondering if you think this is a permanent change or this is just sort of a interregnum before we get back to where we were at, where we were at for the last four years. I hope it's a permanent change. I mean, I think it's it's been remarkably calmer. I think we talked about this last time. It sort of still feels like eerily calm. I mean, people are finding plenty of other stuff to fight about on mm-hmm. the internet. Like, don't sure. a lot of, but it feels been, like a refreshing, Oh, we're having a fight about this relatively picky and thing. That's great. Yeah. People are yelling about the New York times instead of, uh, yes. instead of Donald Trump. Um, so maybe I should, maybe I want the old Twitter back. No, I, I think it's a good change. I think it's, um, you know, it feels like there are spaces where people are going to find better alternatives. Like I think clubhouse is, super fascinating. I, I wrote a column about that today. Um, I know I saw you in there the other day. Yeah. Um, so I think people are really seeking out, like, I think people are really sick of the, um, of the kind of outrage cycle. I think people are really sick of the kind of incentives of these platforms. They feel it like changing them at a, at a like molecular level. Um, so I'm hopeful that, you know, new platforms will, um, will, you know, give people more choice in that, you know, newsletters are also, I think, a response to what people feel is like just exhausting um, performance on social media. And so I'm, I'm actually like this is uncharacteristically optimistic Go about for it. what's going on on the internet right now. I uh, I was thinking, I don't know, it's the last couple, it all kind of zips past, but there's uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon supporter-ish uh, congresswoman, who is really a, 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 you know, embodiment of an internet troll. Um, is doing some stunt where she's put up a, a you know, basically anti-trans poster outside her door to offend the congresswoman across her door. And it's totally performed for the internet. Um, and But you watch it and you go, well, th- I, I get what she's doing. It seems it's, it's terrible that this is happening in Congress and this is sort of like condoned. But on the other hand, like, 
in the same way when you see a kid having a tantrum, you kind of know what it is. And I feel like either we're better equipped to handle that slash ignore it, or we're so exhausted it just doesn't register anymore. The second part is pretty scary because it means they'll have to do more and more performative stuff to, to really upset us. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think people's like, you know, dopamine receptors are like fried after the last four years. Um, so maybe things aren't registering as much or they have to be much more outrageous. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, um, I'm hopeful that people are realizing that, you know, their attention is a valuable commodity and there's only so many things you can think about in a day. You know, my colleague Charlie Warzel has been doing this series about attention and, and I found it really fascinating and it's something that I, I, wrote about in my book as well. Like, I think that, you know, people are, um, our attention is being splintered in so many ways every day. And it just feels like we're starting to realize that maybe we, maybe we want to pay attention to other different things. Like maybe there's a way that we can yeah. be, um, that we can be in charge of that. I can't let this go without asking because you brought up Clubhouse, which I've been interested in and I'm writing about. And that's also why I'm on there. Do we think this conversation would be better Worse, the same if we if you and I had the same conversation on Clubhouse, which is not meant to be a two person conversation with an audience. You could do it that way. Do you think it'd be better if we if we had ten other people joining this conversation? Yeah, I think we should do it. I mean, yeah. I, I I think there's a chance it would go sideways. <laughs> you know, somebody somebody who's a you know AI expert might get up on stage and you know tell me I'm full of shit. But um, yeah, or, that's the or, interesting part of it, right? Is that you can you can someone could come in and 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 educate us, and then we could also be trolled in real time. Or someone who's very boring could come talk to us for a while. Yeah, it's just a different thing. I mean, I think podcasts are are great, um, and I think Clubhouse is is great for you know for different things. I mean, it's it feels there's a kind of like novelty of it, but I think it really is a different product. Um, it feels more like walking around South by Southwest or something um, than it does you know going on a on a podcast. I don't know. How do you how do you feel about it? I don't know. I'm I, the the. I mean, it's definitely in the novelty phase. Definitely in the oh, there's a reason why not everyone should be talking at length. Um, I'm very interested in how savvy the audience is about just Clubhouse, but also just the mechanics of social media. That's what I'm writing about. It's just sort of how well equipped everyone is to sort of immediately start assessing the platform and how it's going to work, which is just, I guess, something that would just happen naturally since we're 10 platforms in at this point. But that's pretty fascinating. Unless I'm, I think you and I are probably on one of the the daily tech and media uh, fight rooms, and I don't have any interest in that. Uh, but hopefully, there's more. <laughs> no, interesting I, stuff going I saw on. you in our tech media fight room the other day. I'm saying I popped into that for a few minutes because someone had texted me and said, "Oh my god, everyone's in this room." So I went, and it's literally all the reporters I know, all the comms people I know. And uh, my response was, "This is good, but I prefer to masturbate in private." <laughs> So then I left. And I also I also like the random rooms more than the ones that like I like that their algorithm is still kind of janky. Yeah. So I'll get like recommendations for like um like like my favorite room is this um is this cotton club where people just like they pretend that they're in the 1920s and like they change their avatars to black and white and you go in and they're like hey Peter welcome what are you having tonight. Um, and, and it's just like a, it's like a weird sort of LARP, um, happening on clubhouse, but I, I kind of love it. So that's the stuff that I'm, I'm really interested in is not like the endless, you know, 
recriminations about the media and tech. It's like the people who are using it to do weird and fun and interesting stuff. Watch now. I'm going to have a tech versus media podcast next week. Um, Kevin, it's delightful to speak to you. I'm glad we got to speak to you so soon. Um, we'll probably have you on again. Maybe not in the very near future, because we should probably have a, a greater yeah, diversity take, take of speakers. A break. Spread the wealth. But we'll have you on. Your book again is Future Proof Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Kevin. Thanks again to Julia. Thanks again to our sponsors. Thanks to Joel and Jelani who edit this show. And thanks to you guys for listening. This is Recode Media. We'll be back with either one or maybe two episodes next week. See you soon.